Um, I wanted to go back to the New York Times article from last night, though, um, just for fun, because uh, it's the title of the article from last night. I mentioned it. Oh, come all ye faithful, except when it falls on, except when Christmas falls on a Sunday. Uh, and that article is uh, curious to me, and it's a curious title, not because it's indicting, you know, for people to not come on Sunday mornings when the date of Sunday morning is on the 25th, as much as to capture our attention that the world takes note of our attendance one way or the other, whether you come on a Sunday or your church service is on a different day of the week, regular worship, worshiping with regularity is witnessing. It is a witness, and it's more and more of a stark, contrastive witness in a growing dark culture. Um, It's a brighter light. And I want us to just be aware of that, that as we gather, we're gathering in the name of Christ. We're not just gathering for ourselves. There is edification that happens inside and encouragement and hope and all that. But it's also gathering so that we're a witness to the world. And people watch and take notice that way. In the Middle English uh, 12th century, that's where the title for December 25th as Christmas was born. So it was the 12th century it came from an English, you know, word, Christ Mass. Um, it's sort of the idea of Mass is not just a Roman Catholic sort of thing where people gather to take communion and, and do that, but Mass just means gathering of people. So you're gathering in the name of Christ. So Christmas really means, um, means church service. It's gathering in a church service. So this is Christmas. So Merry Christmas. This is how it's supposed to be. Um, but the article, I want to just go back to that because you're here, so I can um, sort of take it apart a little bit just as an intro. Ruth uh, Graham is the columnist who wrote, she's a correspondent uh, based in Texas, but writer for the New York Times, a Wheaton graduate, I think a believer, not sure, but she writes for Faith and Religion. She, she uh, interviewed Stonebridge Christian Church, the pastor there. It's a super large church in Nebraska. It holds big events. It has four locations in Omaha where they meet. And Christmas and Easter for them are like Super Bowl Sundays. Uh, They're big big events uh, to to gather around those holidays. Uh, They have the Jingle Jam, which is family parties. And they host nine Christmas Eve services. But on the 25th, she noted... There would be no church on that Sunday. There's all the big events, but we're not gathering on Sunday. And that's kind of her point. She quotes the pastor saying, we're trying to meet people where they are. And people on Christmas uh, Day, when it's on Sunday, they're going to be in their jammies. And so we want to be able to keep them at home there um, where they can have movies and takeout. Um, This was the same dilemma that the churches and, you know, our sphere in our country faced in 2016. We gathered then as well. They gathered in 2016. That church did Stonebridge, but they didn't have a big attendance, so they decided practically not to do it again. A lot of times the rationale is we don't meet for Christmas and Easter uh, when it falls on a midweek, so why would we do it on Sunday? So let's just skip. Let's just skip. I'm not trying to dog anybody for skipping out on church, but I do want to see some of the trends and some of the dynamics that are going on. The article goes on to say that when the COVID-19 pandemic um, shutdowns and lockdowns took place, a lot of people took 
one of two directions. One was to take the hardline stance and meet in defiance, and then the other was to ramp up online. Um, we kind of met, and we also bolstered our online. But the columnist, uh, Ruth Graham, is saying that this reshaped what it means to go to church in the 21st century, that the pandemic scrambled the churchgoers' habits, driving people to a digital spirituality. And we know that to be true. A lot of people are opting out. In 2016, 89% of churches held church, even though it was on Christmas was on a Sunday. And Lifeway Research, which is the Southern Baptist research you know, kind of powerhouse, they said 61% now plan to meet. So just above half of the churches are meeting today. And informal, pragmatic churches are likely not to meet. J.D. Greer, you might have heard of him. He's uh, the pastor of Summit Church, which draws in North Carolina 11,000 people and 20,000 people on big Sundays. They hosted 17 Christmas services pre-Christmas Day, and they closed the doors on the 25th. Um, Summit closed most of 2020 during the COVID lockdown, and they called it a year as an exception. Kevin DeYoung, who's also a pastor, he's a PCA pastor in Matthews, North Carolina, so he's also in North Carolina, he says when churches cancel, he hears in his mind the cliche recast as, hey, it's Christmas and Jesus may not be the reason for the season. DeYoung's sarcastic, but he's funny. Um, DeYoung is meeting, by the way, this morning with a scaled down service like we are. But I like what he says in his blog. He, he wrote a blog uh, surrounding the 2016 um, time when Christmas was on the 25th, and it was called A Plea to Pastors, Don't Cancel Church on Christmas. Five reasons, and I'll give you the five reasons. Number one, most people will come back. It's true, we had a lot of you come back. Visitors will be looking for a place to worship. Some of you might be visitors. Family is a gift, not a God. That's an interesting one to unpack and think about. A lot of people will say, look, in the name of family, I'm skipping church. It's kind of a contradiction. It's Christmas for crying out loud is his, uh, his fourth one. It's Christmas for crying out loud. And in other words, we just, we, it's what a time to sing Christmas hymns. And then number five, it's Sunday for crying out louder. <laughs> and he's a Sabbatarian. You can understand that. But I think it's important to say it's, it's important to be a witness by regular church attendance. I think that's the point. So as a path back to our text from last night to this morning, turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, last book of your Old Testament, um, 39 books of the Old Testament. It's the 39th. Malachi is the final voice before the 400 years of dark silence. And last night I kind of was paralleling the times that Israel was in post-exile, post-exilic Um, Israel, they'd been rescued from Babylon, brought back home. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the tabernacle. Contemporaries of Zechariah and Haggai are are, um, prophetic voices about the temple being remade. You have Zerubbabel, you have Joshua, you have um, Ezra, and you have people on the scene that are um, kind of the foreman and the pastor and the leaders, but they're either dying off or retiring at this stage, and we're at 450 B.C., so 50 years before Revelation just shuts down, and Malachi is assessing the culture as going dark and darker and becoming more and more hopeless because the hope of the 
the temple being rebuilt was that Messiah was going to come, that God was going to fill the temple in a greater way than ever before. The glory will be more manifest than it was before it was destroyed. So the hope was in this reappearance of the Messiah. And they were dutifully building the temple, but in hope that there would be a messianic age, much like we're looking forward to with the millennial reign. And that's really where all of that prophetic um, word from Haggai and Zechariah would be fulfilled, will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. But they're looking at the timeline like this has to happen in our lifetime. And if it's not going to happen in our our lifetime, then we're going to kind of give up on God because we feel like he's given up on us. Is that what our culture is like today? Is that what your heart is like today where you feel like God has given up on our country, God's given up on the church, he's given up on our lives, all the investment to make America conservative and Christian-like and, and take a stand for the family, all that stuff is being combated and reversed and Christianity is becoming less of a blasé thing and more of a caustic thing where we're being polarized against So what are you going to do with that polarization? Are we going to step up our awe of God and trust in God, or are we going to digress? And Malachi is at a point of digression, and they need to be called back and called back in hope. Now, if you've heard this from me before, I'll say it again. The reason for prophecy is twofold, always two things in prophecy. The Bible gives prophecy to give us hope, and the Bible gives us prophecy to give us holiness, The Bible gives us prophecy to say there's something coming that we can hang on to when life looks really dark. And the Bible gives us the accountability that, oh, the something that's coming is Jesus and he's going to look right into your life. What sort of person ought we to be? What manner of living ought we to find ourselves in when the trumpet sounds and the Lord returns? That's the point of prophecy. Prophecy is not to make us modern-day Nostradamus. Prophecy is not to give us the secret knowledge or the corner on the truth as to the events, exactly how they're going to unfold in the future. Prophecy is not for us to freak out and geek out over prophetic movies and try to pragmatically scare people into the kingdom. Prophecy is not to become puffed up with precisely figuring everything out on the neat um, cheat sheet chart of prophecy that it's going to look exactly this way. Prophecy is for two things, your holiness and for your hope. And those two things are tied together always when you read prophecy. Holiness and hope. That's what we hang on to. Last night I made the case that because we know it's rock solid that Jesus came, we know rock solid he's going to come again. And that's the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is to fill us with hope, but it's also to fill us with holiness as we hope. Holiness as we hope. That's what's important about Malachi. You see the parallels here. I'm borrowing um, research and material and perhaps some quotes from a Piper sermon that was given to me about 10 days ago that steered me in the direction of doing this sermon. You can look it up later. It's John Piper's Malachi sermon from December 19th, 1982. 40 years ago, he preached this with the idea of Christmas and a Christmas prophecy. And I sort of built um, a couple sermons out of that research. This is Christmas hope that comes with Christmas holiness. Let me just read a a little bit of a a section just to get us going here. Look at verse 17, and then I'm going to read down of chapter 2 and read into Malachi 3. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? 
by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come in his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will bring a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, reading a prophecy like this, hopefully, if you were here last night, you have a little bit of a context for what's going on. A prophetic word, not only is it it's building holiness and hope, it's, it's doing something very practically. It's talking about the end times and the future things in a package. A lot of times, uh, you'll see the first coming of Christ where he comes as the servant, as the lamb, as the, as the savior. As the, as the sacrifice for our sins, Isaiah 53 talks about that. But you'll also see that paralleled with the great day of the Lord where he returns again the second time. Revelation chapter 20 where he comes on a white horse and he comes with a two-edged sword with a robe dipped in blood. And he's going to turn his enemies into a great wine press where they are trampled underfoot. And all of that day of the Lord is spoken of through the major and the minor prophets, and it's brought to bear even as we look forward to that great day that's coming through the first and second Thessalonians and then also Revelation. All of that is compressed in these prophecies, and you see that again here. Prophecy is to give us hope, but it's also to give us holiness. I want to look at where we need to be holy because of this Christmas prophecy. This final prophetic word is marking out two big sins that, were, that Israel was involved in. The two big sins was marital breakdown and money worship. Marriage breaking down and money worship. Imagine that. Those are the sins of the ages then and now. He calls out illegitimate divorce. There was intermarriage with unbelievers that was taking place. People were divorcing. People were sinning. People were committing adultery. And then there is the sin of greed and the seared conscience where there was no fear of God. So people were not giving to God. People were not caring for the poor. They had no fear of God. Malachi 3.5, we just read. These sins were what people were capitulating to, to fill their hearts because they felt hopeless. That's what people do. They're believing the prediction of God's glory and return was not coming. And so they began to do two things Um, towards God. One, they begin to presume on God, back to chapter 2, verse 17. 
the indictment here of wearying the Lord. You've t- you're tiring the Lord's patience. By what? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. In other words, all bets are off. We can do whatever we want to do. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? It's just cavalier license living where you say, I'm a Christian or I'm a believer, I'm a follower of God, but God really doesn't care. In fact, he's even delighting in what I'm doing wrong because he just gives him more grace to, to stay alive and do it anyway. It's like being the kind of the rebellious child in the home where you just don't care. You, you, the parents aren't going to do anything, so I'll just do whatever I want to do. Romans chapter 6, Paul indicts this saying, um, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? May it never be. That attitude is what Malachi is confronting. And then secondly, it's the idea of not only presuming upon the Lord, but it's scoffing the Lord and, and doubting God and saying, where is the God of justice? If God is real and he's really this God who cares and why is he letting things go wrong? And so it's creating doubt, ignoring God and accusing God. These are the sins beneath the sins. This is, these are the attitudes that manifest the actions of marital unfaithfulness and the attitudes of um, being stingy with money or a money worshiper or greed. All of this comes back to questioning the Lord's return, not believing he's going to come back, not believing there's ever going to be any accountability whatsoever, and So Malachi builds the bridge in verse three, uh, chapter three, verse one, to from hope to holiness. That's what's happening. We unpacked verse one last night. The three different persons um, that represent the hope of God's coming. You have my messenger. Behold, I send my messenger, that's John the Baptist. He'll prepare the way. We talked about that. Jesus affirmed that John is the fulfillment of Elijah that was promised to come, Malachi 4, 5. He's preparing the way. He was the one that said the Lamb of God is here. And then you have the Lord, which is the, where you have capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. That's referencing the Messiah, represent, representing the second member of the Trinity. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come in his temple. The messianic um, fulfillment is coming. He will fill his temple. And he's the messenger of the covenant. He came before in his first coming saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The covenant of the gospel is what he offered in whom you delight. And then behold, he is coming. The third person that's in this text, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus, and then you have God the Father who's exalting the Son and lifting up his Son. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts, capital L-O-R-D. This is God saying, my Son is coming. It's rock solid. He's endorsing and exalting the Son. All of this is a call for us to refortify our faith and say we do have hope. We stand in the middle of the two advents, his first coming and his second coming. Talked about that last night. We hang on to, to it. We know he's coming back because we know he came. We know Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, who was conceived, conceived him by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was announced by angels. The shepherds carried on the evangelistic mission around Bethlehem and the surrounding region. Jesus was born in Bethlehem that was predicted by the prophet Micah. He's the incarnate deity. He is God, very God, who took on flesh. 
He is the mighty God of Isaiah chapter 9 and that prophecy. He's born of a virgin, set apart, this woman who, um, because she conceived Christ by the Holy Spirit, Christ's Messiah was perfect and untouched from the fall. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was laid in a manger. Then he grew and he escaped Herod's plot to kill him, to destroy the Messiah, Herod's wrath and rage. And then Jesus was extolled and venerated and coronated by the kingmakers, the wise men who came from the east, who represent Gentiles, who were bowing at the early stage of the Messiah, saying, he is king, he is Lord, which represents the gospel call of the whole world. This is the messenger of the covenant who has come, and we have that hope. That is verse 1. That is the Christmas prophecy. But the Christmas prophecy does not leave us unaccountable. Let's not just come to Christmas and say, I had a feel-good service. Now let's dig in, look inside, and think about our own hearts in terms of the Lord's accountability. This is the tension of the Christmas prophecy. Verse 2 begins with a question. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? This is the second coming. And who can stand when he appears? Who can? Who can do that? Well, point one, why believers will endure and stand when Jesus returns? Why will you endure and stand when Jesus returns? Because at the Lord's second coming, he refines his priests. You say, how is that good news? And isn't he talking about the priest of Levi? Yes, and we'll make that distinction between an Old Testament priest and a New Testament priest. But just for application's sake, as we look to the Lord's second coming, Be thankful that he's going to refine you because there's one of two options. He either judges you and crushes you or he refines you as a child. The Lord disciplines and chastens the ones that he loves. He's called you to holiness. He's made you holy in the gospel and he's making you holy through his process of growing you, which is called sanctification. He makes you holy. And in the final day, he's coming in a way that is pictured Um, that is very, very uh, scary. For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. A refiner's fire, first and foremost, is the picture of a a forge where you have precious metal that is um, melted down like silver, and it's, it's melted in a way that the fire is causing all the impurities that are in this metal to rise to the surface so it can be scraped off. You've heard that over and over again. But that is the picture of the fire of God's pressure being put on us through trials. God loves you, and so he wants to make you holy, and the way he makes you holy is through trusting him while you endure hardship. While you endure hardship. Holiness is hard. So when God comes back, he's judging rejectors, but he's rescuing receivers. And the way that he rescues the receiver, the one who receives the Lord and has eternal life, is through a process of a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. What is the fuller's soap? I had to look that up. It's just that picture of of someone um, who takes soap and just does this to the cloth until it gets You know, it's just scouring it until it gets clean. That's the process of sanctification. That's that's what's promised to the priest, a refining. And it's a refining work that happens now. 
The Lord's second coming is future, but we are living in the last days. And in the last days, the Lord is purifying his people, growing them in holiness. Holiness hurts. Being scrubbed is painful. I still remember the days when I was a child being scrubbed you know, in the tub or being scrubbed in the shower stall when my dad and I'd be camping or whatever. And, you know, it's like you're just getting toweled off as a little tiny kid. You know, it, it's kind of being rough, you know. Uh, it's, it's rough work. And it's something that uh, the Lord does to the ones he loves. Well, how does this apply to us? Isn't this talking about the sons of Levi? What's happening here? Who are the sons of Levi? You see that here in verse 3. He will sit as a refiner's fire and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them. That's verse 3, like gold and silver. He's making them righteous. Well, the sons of Levi are the representatives of Israel. You say, isn't God interested in purifying all who are believers from Israel? Yes. If you're purifying the priests, then the priests represent uh, the the leadership, the spiritual leadership of the rest. So if the priests are pure, then those who are believers like these priests are also going to inherit this promise. All believers of all ages in all the ways that God was working in the Old Testament time and in the New Testament time are considered for this promise. Like priests go the people. So are we the sons of Levi, well, judgment does begin with the household of God. And there is a parallel from God's household in Israel to the church. No, we are not historically, ethnically, religiously, or politically the sons of Levi. But yes, we are in the sense that God titles every believer, every New Testament Christian, a priest. And in terms of what he calls us to do, you say, in what sense are we a priest? I'm not a priest where I'm, you know, blessing somebody or giving somebody salvation or a blessing. No, but we we pray for people. It's intercessory work. That's priestly work. We are priests to the world in the sense that we stand for God as a representative and we preach the gospel. We live the gospel by what we do, by what we don't do, by our habit to gather as a church. This is priestly work where we become an intermediary, a messenger between um, God and their own heart. And so in that sense, We are God's priests. We are worshipers. We're all living stones that make up the temple of God. We're all active participants. It's not just the paid pastor that you come to grade or that you come as a consumer to see, you know, if you like church or not. No, as Christians, we're all actively participating in the worship and in the facilitation of worship as we minister to one another. First Peter 2.5, it's the holy priesthood, the royal priesthood. It's what we're called. All believers in the church are called this holy priesthood. So understanding this means that Malachi 3.3 is a promise and a, and a blessing to our own lives and our own holiness. God is working his refiner's fire, verse 3, purifying the silver and gold of our lives even now to make us righteous to the Lord. You say, isn't my righteousness only Christ's righteousness? Yes, that's true in terms of God's imputed, stated sort of verdict on your life. Yes, you are declared righteous. But be not deceived. God cares about your holiness. He grieves over your sin. He wants you to be right with him. 
He cares about the, tra- the trajectory of your life. He cares about the witness of your life. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your giving. He cares about whether or not you're bowing down to money or you're serving the master. You can't serve two masters. He cares about those things in your life. He cares as to whether you fear him or not. He deserves this glory and he refines you for it. When did this begin? Well, Hebrews 1.3 Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification for your sins. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us for, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 1 John 3.8 The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy the works of the devil in your life. He's purified you so that you will be on a path of purity. He's purified you. He's counted you righteous, but it sets you on a course of being made pure. And that path is the path of perseverance that leads all the way to glory, Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin... Set free from the dominant power of sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is the path of holiness where we're just going from one degree to the next, living for the Lord until we're ultimately welcomed in. In a word, Christ came to make you clean and he's coming again and that accountability should be cause for us to grow. Christmas is for purity. Christmas is about realizing that you have the power to have a solid marriage. You have the power to have a solid holiness and not settle into the world. Look at Malachi. Look at the lead-in again back in chapter 2 where he's indicting uh, the Israelites for their sin. Verse 14 But you say, why does he not? In other words, why does he not regard our offerings that we were giving? Why why don't you take them? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. It says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit And do not be faithless. That's the lead-in to this Christmas prophecy of Christ was coming and he's coming again. Living in between, thinking about that is how we guard ourselves. God provides the power to resist sin and lust, what kills marriages. And he provides the intimacy with himself, with the Lord personally, as the Lord leads you, as the Lord guides you, as the Lord directs your heart, as he guides you in intimacy, that's what provides the intimacy in your marriage. 
You say, what if I'm married to an unbeliever? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about that in verse 14, that you also, as a believer in the household, have the power of God to be in that situation and be a witness to your unbelieving spouse, either a male or female in either case, as a believer or unbeliever, we have the power of God. As two believers, you're able to triangle as you, as you love the Lord, you're drawing closer to each other. And this all comes from this Christmas prophecy. Secondly, holiness is built in terms of your money, not just your marriage, but also in terms of what you have. Holiness is being content. Holiness is being pure. Holiness is being a giver. Holiness is being unstingy, unmiserly. It's giving as an example of releasing the control that you want in your own life by what you're trying to protect, the comforts that you're trying to protect by giving. It doesn't give us the right to be irresponsible with our resources. We have to balance that with good stewardship, but we're supposed to be givers because we realize that God is the provider. Malachi 3 verse 8, will man rob God? This is the other sin that was going on. Will he rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Watch this. Why would I want to give to the Lord and his temple work if Jesus isn't, if the Messiah hasn't come back, if the promise isn't being fulfilled if times are getting darker and harder is is this program not working out so why would i give to that that's the pragmatist talking verse 9 you are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me the whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the lord of hosts if i will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need Put me to the test. You're testing me with your accusation. Put me to the test by faith. That's what he's saying. Why were they bringing blind goats to the house of God? For their own comfort? Greed kills the soul and it contradicts Christmas. Think about Christmas. The ultimate gift was given to us. It's It's incomparable to money. His coming, his provision, his life, his nearness. It's unbreakable in its commitment to you. It's the gift of eternal life. Prophecies for two things, holiness and hope. Well, how do we get there in our attitude? We need to assault the two wrong attitudes of being presumptuous, uh, Malachi 2.17, and being a scoffer, being a doubter, presumption and doubt. We need to kill that. And you kill it by repenting of that and by becoming in love with the Lord and in awe of God. And that's where Malachi sort of takes things with this prophecy. Malachi 1.11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. You need to get a big view of God if you're going to apply this and for it to matter. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 2.5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. It's bowing in the reverential fear of God, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. This is the covenant that was made with all the priests of Levi. The priest of Levi was built out of a perpetual priesthood based on Phinehas and his great stand he took in the nation of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness, and he, he zealously stood for the Lord in the awe of God in Numbers twenty five thirteen. Out of that, the priesthood was born. Malachi 3, 16 to 18. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance, this is probably the Lamb's book of life being mentioned in the Old Testament. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and established and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. That's prophetic accountability. Jesus came. He's the lamb. He's the shepherd. He's lowly. He's humble. He's meek. He's the baby in the manger. God in flesh who grew as the lamb of God who died on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's a precious truth and reality and promise that was fulfilled from all the Old Testament prophecies. It was fulfilled first advent. There's a second advent coming that brings holiness and accountability to us. And we live in light of both. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubbled. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. He's going to bring down those who reject and he's going to receive those who love him. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, which Elijah came in the form of John the Baptist. But there's an awesome day that's still coming, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers of their children to the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We have hope, and we have the accountability of holiness. And we have the blessed assurance that we, though we will be refined in this life all the way to the end, will grow, but we will be utterly rescued in heaven. The parallels between then and now are striking, but we have a rock-solid Christmas prophecy to hang on to. Let's not give up. Let's not spiral in sin in 2023. 1 Timothy 3.16, this will end our time. Listen to this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And guess what? He's coming back again.